Welcome to Plants and Pipettes, the podcast where we talk about plants and pipettes. <laughs> Hi, I'm Joram. <laughs> Hello, I'm Tegan. This is my bedroom voice. Yeah, I heard that um, we should say our names more often so people don't confuse us. Um, because we sound very much <laughs> they alike. They might think I'm Joram. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. Sometimes I put your photo on Instagram people are like, which one of that is you again? <laughs> Wait, Tegan, are you the one with the awesome beard? Or is that, yeah. <laughs> it's really hard. We know one of you is like a dude in Berlin, but from the pictures we can't really tell which one it is. <laughs> Wow, that just suddenly became super naggy. <laughs> like, just... That's something that we will talk about later again um, <laughs> in the show. Being a dude in Berlin or nagging? <laughs> nagging. <laughs> oh, will we talk about nagging? How joyful. Yeah, in some way. Like, yeah, it, um, yeah, it will be... I hope we will make it fun because it can be not fun. But I don't want to like <laughs> give off a bad vibe at it's the beginning of It's fun if you're it. the nagger, not if you're the naggy. <laughs> Have you For been somebody doing... with so round a head, Yoram, that beard looks pretty good on you. <laughs> yeah, are you the first in your family to have a career in science, Tegan? Not really, if you count engineers as scientists, but do we, though? I don't know. No, no. I don't <laughs> think engineering is difficult. You're an engineer by trade. Like, you're a... That's how I can tell you that it's not hard. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you've been doing this week, but I had a little flashback to my lab work days because I, I started rapid testing myself for, for the COVID virus. I know there's, like, lots of, like, dubious uh, claims around it or, like, just testing in itself is not mm -hmm. always a strategy to get out of a pandemic, I understand that. I just want to make that clear here. But sometimes yeah. it can give you like a little peace of mind when you do meet with people or have to meet with people um, that at least a little like cassette thing is negative. And um, the chances but are... But you're using the, the rapid tests that are like the, the rapid 15 testing, minute ones, the right? Antigen testing that are technically only working when you have symptoms already. And then you can tell if the symptoms come from COVID or not from COVID. But if you don't have symptoms... A negative test result doesn't mean that you don't have COVID. So yeah. Yeah, I think just I don't think it has to be like symptoms, but it's like you have to have quite a high viral load. So I think it's it's quite high false negative. So yeah. a negative is not a negative. Yeah, I read that but, out of the eight days when you are infectious, only five of those days can be detected by the tests. And the three like the three first days when you are infectious but most likely don't have any symptoms whatsoever, the tests can't detect that because then the viral load is not high enough yet. Okay. Um and so I know. So that seems all of like that. you should be like Pause. Wait, that's the first three days when you're infected, but that's already like five to 21 days after you've met somebody who's infected yeah. you. So that window is a bit vague, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. But um, yeah. so, but sort of the, 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 the dangerous stage when you have no way of knowing that you are infectious, but you are already infectious, these rapid antigen tests apparently also don't help you. So in Germany, we rely quite a lot on testing right now with not a lot of success but uh, anyway what i wanted to say is not really going to the whole COVID details but um you have to do like a little like swab and put it in a solution and then drop exactly three drops on this little testing cassette and it does like a bit of chromatography and then you have a readout and it felt like a throwback to lab times like a very simple lab experiment but <laughs> like it was really annoying to put like this little stick up my nose but I, everything after that, I was like, hey, science, it's like science. And I'm like mixing the tube and like putting the cap on <laughs> and then setting a timer. Does it have like a color change reaction or something? Because that would be nice. They should no. do that because I think people would enjoy that. Like it's adding Only a bit the of chromatography. 
But that's also fun because you see like the, the running front quite quickly move past like your thing. Um, okay. And then, you, I mean, you have to wait 15 minutes and for like three minutes you see something in the beginning and then you have to wait for 15 minutes to make sure that the test had a chance to actually do its thing. Um, and then you see hopefully only one band. But still, I was like, yay, this is like lab work and I, I miss lab work. Um, I would like to do another lab experiment and... I take what I can get these days in, t- in terms of enjoyment. And if it comes from like a COVID antigen test, I'm all up for it. Yeah, it's interesting. I was just also discussing this today because um, my my office will be reopening probably not very soon. But they've sort of indicated that we should be testing ourselves with these same tests like twice a week, basically. Um, and they're now, I think, free from the NHS. So I think you can you can call up and every day you call, you're allowed to get six seven tests for each household so i think you can just like test yourself test your cat like test everybody (laughs) um and like the the immediate thought i had is i wonder if like this um like this new generation of young people and like like our age people also we're not that young but would be like better (laughs) at doing other preventative testing like for stis or for like you know pap smears pancreatic cancer because like it just is a bit more normalized this thing of like oh yeah you just do the test and that makes it okay and like you know it's like it's a bit scary doing those things like it seems invasive but if you're a bit more used to it it's maybe yeah that's a pro I yeah overall I agree overall I think it's um a good way to normalize doing this sort of tests the way it was good to normalize wearing a mask during like flu season um this is good but at the same time like I also did like we can get uh tests for free if we go to a test center and we mm. for the ones at home that I have now I had to buy them for like five bucks a piece so it's also not very cheap um but like okay enough uh but uh in the in the test center you like they did a very haphazard job of poking my nose and i assume that they're the experts on this and they did it right but at the same time it the test yeah, results relies on them nose, doing it right so like hmm? nothing <laughs> it's just when it's negative um you don't know if it's negative because you don't have the virus or because you did the testing a bit odd and so um it's impressive that we were managed to get like a an actual accurate covid test from somebody with your type of nose <laughs> it's not quite a neg it's just an insult i think that's the problem like whenever i try negging somebody i just like go fully insult it's just like you're just weird like, <laughs> like, what's with your nose it's um, fun to hear something f- from somebody that ugly that one that was supposed to be a microaggression. It's not. It's just a macro and aggressive aggression, and it's not. Yeah, the the, the thing that I struggle with the nagging is making this sound like there's something positive. Like you've got to get the like. <laughs> yeah. You are very pretty for XXX. That's kind of the. <laughs> no, I mean, given given like your background and your struggles, I'm quite impressed um, how well you pulled that off with the testing. That would be something. Given, given your one. Your your background and your struggles with other things yeah, in the past. Your background and struggles just like goes in towards like racism or xenophobia. And I don't really want to do that. I just want to say your nose looks weird. I am. But I thought you wanted to say I'm stupid too and can't do the testing. Um, we got a little bit lost here in the way we can insult ourselves. And it will hopefully Wait, all be clearer given that later I've seen in the you show. you try to eat an ice cream, it's shocking that you managed to get the thing up your nose. Something like that. <laughs> No, that's, it's still also just negative. There's nothing nice about. No, you shouldn't let me say like impressed. You should really like you. You should 
say a negative thing, but then say like a proper positive, like something, if you just would say the second part of it, it's a positive thing. Like you did very well doing the test at home is a positive thing. But then if you like mix in that something like given the way you worked at, uh, in the lab, it's um, you did very well doing the test at home. It is a micro insult because you tell me like I I, I did terrible work in in the lab. Fun fact: When my mother first found out I wanted to be a bio like microbiologist, she's like, "So like in the lab, that's that you it's not dangerous for you. Like you're not like you're not dropping the things. <laughs> that's <laughs> I'm clumsy, yeah, that's guys. <laughs> it's fine." Like that. I don't know. I've got got a lot to learn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what do we... Do, shall we do a little bit of plant science now? Oh, oh, I want to talk about the Pokemon thing first. Can I talk okay. about the Pokemon yeah, thing? Yeah, I didn't know when you wanted to talk about this. You told me that I should remind you about the Pokemon. This is your reminder. <laughs> um, I was looking... It's not a plant-based thing, but it's an Australian thing, and I think that's one of the subtopics of this podcast at this point. Um. So I was looking for papers for other non-plants pipet stuff, um, and I found one that was published in Methods in Ecology and Evolution. It's one of the journals by the British Ecological Society, um, and it's by Warren et al. The title is The Effect of Climate Change on Australia's Only Endemic Pokemon and then measuring bias in species distribution models. So I don't know if you've heard of... Kangashgani. The Kangashgani. It's a Pokemon. And a Pokemon that's based on a real animal, or do you like is Australia that crazy that you actually do have live oh, no. Pokemon? There's a, there's a there's an actual Pokemon called Kangaskhan. Kangash it's it's I think it's supposed to be a mix between Kangaroo and Genghis Khan. That would be my guess. Kangaskhan. Okay. But so in this paper, <laughs> unfortunately, my background in Pokemon is not strong. And I was really hoping that Yoram would help yeah. out here. But apparently... Yeah, you skipped all of the Pokemon <laughs> classes back in PhD school. Yoram, for somebody who's so nerdy, you're not that good at Pokemon. No, it's still not an egg. It's still just a double. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying so hard. <laughs> um, yeah, Yoram played Pokemon for a while and it was really annoying. That's my story. <laughs> um... <laughs> like you're walking with him just okay this can be cut um anyway so <laughs> this person basically it's it's a kind of funny topic but they are sort of using it to just like to show something methodological so just showing how using certain models species distribution models um to predict how the habitats of animals and plants will change with changing conditions you know commonly climate change these days um there's like when you do these models and you then predict into the future, you have some problems, you have some limitations um, and some biases and that can really massively skew the results. So they're basically using this um, imaginary creature and treating it like a real creature and then, you know, using it as an example, they're, they're predicting mm. how where it lives and then how where it will live in the future based on, on climate change. Um, but they're using that to then show how you can end up with like skews of the data but it's just, it's really charming because the way they approach it, they just kind of like act as if it is a real animal. So they call it Garora Kangaskani. So it's Kangaskan is the Pokemon, but they give it like a proper, um, <laughs> like, name. 
yeah, Janice Spacey's um, name. <laughs> and then <laughs> they're discussing like... Garora Kangaskhani is the only Pokemon endemic to the geographic use region used in these two studies. So they're talking about like Australian mammals. Um, they link it to like a recent study on actual like 220 species of Australian mammals, which is I think by the same authors. Um, I want to show, I'm just going to like pull up some really funny quotes because there's some like really beautiful stuff. So because it was in this Pokemon, Pokemon Go, is that the name of the game? Mm-hmm. So... <laughs> They're saying, you know, it's endemic to Australia, but then they say periodic spates of sighting across Europe, Asia, and the Americans suggest that G. Kangaskhani are capable of long-range dispersal, but do not readily colonize new urban habitats outside of Australia. And that's like, okay, a bit like silly, but they they have like these proper... kind of proper references like they have like real referencing but it's like poker base 2020 or bulbapedia 2020a um (laughs) and then my favorite bit is um garora kangaskhani was previously hunted to the brink of extinction and one of the primary threats to the to persistence um continues to be the poaching of adults and eggs while Kangaskhan may sometimes be eaten, poaching is primarily motivated by the acquisition of specimens intended for blood sport. <laughs> Captured animals are used in contests in which the maternal defense of the young is exploited to motivate adult G. Kangaskhani into fighting both conspecifics and heterospecifics. So, like, this mix of, like, this very real scientific talk and, like, the threats to the species with what is just a Pokemon arena fighty thing, a match... I guess. Yeah, Pokemon um, actually like to fight is what all the people who make Pokemon fight want us to believe. <laughs> yes, and then um, the final, the final. I'll just read this like last bit from that paragraph. We see little room for optimism in this scenario, given that the culture around Pokemon harvesting so explicitly flavors favors over exploitation, as seen in the common refrain of "Gotta catch 'em all." <laughs> it's just it's delightful to the point where like it's sometimes hard to to be like is this uh, did I miss something is this Pokemon based on an actual real speak like is there something there <laughs> um yeah it's, yeah, it's, it's so... also fun because Pokemon is I mean not only like a major brand thing but so deeply linked to science in in its own storytelling Every yes. part of it begins with like a professor calling you into the lab and then sort of showing you different Pokemon. You pick one and then it's like, yeah, I have to study more of the Pokemon. So go out in the wild and collect as many as you can because I need to study them. It's all like the, in, the, the initial motivation is about like science, but then you immediately go out and be like, okay, fight, like punch, 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 punch. Okay, so that I didn't know. I was more thinking about the fact that like most of the Pokemon are actually based on real animals, right? They're that often well, a mix yeah. of multiple, you know, it's got that kind of biology and the way they act and behave and where they hang out is also linked, you know, like this one is a duck and I don't know, platypus or a duck and it's going to be found near watery areas. Like this seems to be... There's a duck that always carries a leak. I mean, not yeah, even joking. As, as we often see with ducks in nature. I'm not sure why you made that point, but sure. Um, <laughs> the final comment is that they've also got like a an artist's rendition of the species with a young in its pouch um, as the figure one of the paper. So yeah, and I love it because it's like, it's so fun. Um, but also like it is, it's a good science communication tool. Like people, it's, it's a methods paper, um, which can be like a little bit hard to 
like motivate yourself to read sometimes right <laughs> like unless it's specifically your niche and you have to do like an experiment so they've really made it engaging by having this like bizarre uh, character example so and what yeah, i really want cool. to applaud here specifically is that they use pop culture but they also like very deeply understood the reference that they were making it's not like haphazardly like <laughs> tacking on like some pop culture and being like here everybody look at the pop culture and now think that our science is cool but no they really understand what they're talking about both scientifically and pop culturally i like that and um just because like this week i stumbled across like somebody using as like a initial like as like their headline image for a talk that they were doing about like robots in the field and then they showed a stormtrooper photoshopped into like a flower field when stormtroopers in star wars are very famously known not to be robots and this is exactly like the opposite of what the people with the Pokemon paper did. Like the people who photoshopped that stuff together had no idea what they were doing. Um, and just were like, look, we need Star Wars is cool, right? What do the kids today like? Star Wars? Star Wars, okay. We, we talk about like automation in, in like agriculture. Let's have like a stormtrooper standing in a flower field to attract the young people because they need to know about like smart automation in, the, in agriculture. Um, so that was like what got me riled up this week and it's so beautiful that you brought like by just by chance like a pop culture reference it's like a p prime example of how it's done and i love that like i really will check out that paper like i love the idea i love it so much i'm just impressed that they managed to use the term blood spot like eight times throughout the text <laughs> wow <laughs> but well <laughs> it's really cool um shall we talk about some actual plant stuff now favorite plant um and this week i chose something that i i don't even know if we talked about this on a podcast we talked about this on the blog for uh, certainly but there is mm. new evidence uh and new evidence means new publication as in i'm publishing new stuff to you over the podcast <laughs> so my favorite plant this week is coffea stenophylla um and there has been a new publication uh, in Nature Plants this week from Aaron P. Davis uh, f uh, and Jeremy Hager is the last author. And we talked about the species, Coffea stenophylla, already before. Specifically, you talked about this on, on the blog. We had already, I think, last mm -hmm. year there was a publication um, about their findings from the same authors um, about missing coffee plants. Um, because yeah. coffee... I don't know. Do you want to say something about like why were they looking for coffee? Why were they looking for coffee? So they were looking for it because I'm. I mean, you can tell the backstory. I think we have like basically, we drink coffee, but most of the coffee we drink comes from just two different species of coffee. But there are actually 120 different species of coffee, and there's this huge interest now to look like at diversifying the species that we eat and drink so not just coffee but like with a lot of different crops um as a way to future proof against like things like climate change but also pests and drought you know everything so they were searching for a coffee that had been um cultivated back in the 1920s i think um and before that but then like and people had 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 made it had sold it had said it tastes delicious and then it went nobody had heard of it since then um so they there was a paper that came out last year where they wrote about this and they wrote like they literally put up wanted posters um in like sierra leone um was it guinea was the country i think guinea and ivory coast yes and like wanted have you seen this coffee and they found yeah. it yeah that exactly was last year's and paper. then 
yeah, they they found it. They found it back in uh, like in the wild, um, but only very few plants in some locations. I think in one some location there was like literally one single plant that they could find, and these areas are like so often endangered areas that are where there's like mining in the area or some other like human development that threatens these habitats, and therefore. Um, it was sort of a lucky find that they still got these individuals out in the wild because I don't know, in 10 years, 20 years time, it might've been much harder, close to impossible to find those because the habitats are on the brink of destruction. Um, and so what they uh, did, they, of course, um, back then they did like proper scientific descriptions of the plants and uh, sampling and, and so on, but they didn't have enough of the plant to do any look into what the coffee is like. And it's sort of, one of the main motivations to look for new coffee plants is then also to find coffee plants that make a good coffee. And this is what they managed to do now. So they took some like plant material home that they could cultivate and they managed to cultivate enough to brew enough coffee to actually taste test it. And this is what they did now. And this is the, the publication that came out. It's called Arabica-like flavor in a heat-tolerant wild coffee species. Um, and that's Coffea stenophylla. And they did some taste testing, um, compared it to you other to... known varieties of or current varieties of coffee. Exactly, you have to say why why arabica, why arabica, like is is a, a thing. Yeah, because like arabica and robusta are the two kinds of uh, coffees that we mostly use now, and they have like arabica and robusta. They each have their own distinct flavor profiles, and then also between sort of African varieties and South American varieties, you also have distinct pr flavor profiles, um, and these are what coffee drinkers are looking for. So if you find a new plant that tastes like like some sort of coffee but very different to these ones it will be harder to market them uh mm -hmm. but if you find something that's very close to what's already sort of searched for what people like to drink then of course it's much easier to um actually yeah market that coffee or use it i found that a coffea stenophylla uh has a flavor profile very similar to arabica coffee from um ethiopia so they did like a mapping with like some sensory testing. I think we had that also before on the show, how, how that works and that you have like very defined names of flavor profiles. Um, and they had something like fruity, acidity, body, bitterness, astringency, earthy and burned. Um, and you can map then different coffee varieties on this sort of um, radial map and um, draw their individual flavor profile. And they did that for like um, an Arabica coffee from Brazil, uh, an Arabica coffee from Ethiopia, a Robusta variety from Indonesia, and the new Coffea stenophylla variety. And the Coffea stenophylla looked very similar to the Arabica Ethiopia flavor profile, which indicates that they are yeah very similar in taste and therefore could be blended together or one could replace the other, um, which is very interesting, which means that it's like a coffee variety that can be marketed. Yeah, so I think like, I've also read this paper and I think like the importance for being similar to the Ethiopia type is because um, in this case, the Ethiopian Arabica was the superior Arabica. So it was like the one that was like the highest quality Arabica. Um, and the Brazilian Arabica was also like okay quality. And then generally Arabica is higher than Robusta as well. So they basically had three different ranges of um, 
coffee goodness and um, the Stenophila basically was ranking with that Ethiopian, which happens to be the highest. And in the paper, they even say, you know, we're not saying that like coffee from Brazil is always worse than coffee from Ethiopia. Sometimes like the, the Arabica from Ethiopia is bad and sometimes the Brazilian Ethi- Arabica is good. It just happens that this was a really nice like blend of Ethiopian mm. Arabica. And so like, yeah, the, the important thing there is like it's sort of on par with one of the highest qualities that is already out there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm actually right now, like, I mean, you, you frame me always as a hipster um, <laughs> on, on Instagram. And there's a little bit of truth to that, because right now I'm like drinking a couple of very different coffee beans um, that are coming from from like different Af- uh, African growers, but also like South American growers. And I have to say, like, many of them are good, but I mean, they have been specifically selected to be good coffee. So, yeah, you can... The, the location is I not mean, as important we, as like the individual quality of the coffee variety there. We put um, the, the the article we wrote last July was missing. Have you seen this coffee? But we had like an alternative title, which is you're not a real hipster unless you drink coffee as dinner filler. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And why is it so exciting to find a new coffee that tastes like the coffee that we already have in some ways? Um, It's because it has a different optimal growth um, temperature. It can actually grow at higher temperatures than the uh, Coffea Arabica, which means that when you um, face the threat of climate change and rising temperatures, that could mean that some habitats where uh, Coffea Arabica is grown currently might not be able to grow it anymore in the future because of rising temperatures and the plant can't survive anymore. But now with Coffea stenophilia filler, there is an option to grow this variety instead, get a similar taste in coffee, but at higher temperatures. Or you could start um, doing breeding programs and sort of breed the high temperature resistance from Coffea stenophila into Coffea arabica lines. So you have multiple approaches now available now that you have more genetic material that... Um, looks promising, that tastes well, and that is um, growing in conditions where you couldn't previously grow the same quality of coffee. So that's really exciting and really good news for coffee drinkers um, because more diversity means more robustness to the entire system, the production system, um, and which means higher chance of being able to drink coffee in the future. Although I recently saw like the numbers of like CO2 equivalents produced by coffee production, it's not looking good. Like, you shouldn't be drinking coffee, but at the same you time, I can't coffee. stop. You just successfully nicked coffee. <laughs> it's like, for something that tastes so good, you sure leave a lot of CO2 in the atmosphere. <laughs> like that? Yeah, kind of. Um, but yeah, so Getting that's Coffea's uh, Stenophila. Um, a very exciting story. Uh, I'm very happy that there is this follow-up now. Um, I quite like that we are sort of following along this this story of this new new coffee variety making its way into uh, hopefully being that I can eventually get a taste of it because I'm I'm quite curious now as well. I think now you would have to be very good friends with the researchers to taste it, but I hope that will soon change eventually. Diversity in the class, science. Um. <laughs> So this time um, we're talking about Baron de Montgomery and I'm really excited to talk about her because I think this is, out of all the people we've talked about before, um, 
I think her research is actually probably some of the closest to the stuff that we've studied, or at least I've studied. So um, I don't know, like, usually we start with, you know, she was born and she died. She's still alive. I don't know her birth date. That's her private information. Um, I do know that she is a professor in the Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology and of Microbiology and Molecular Genetics. So, like, really within Yoram and I's wheelhouse, um, she's at Michigan State University, um, but she's doing that molecular biology stuff. She's studying plants, and more um, specifically, she's studying adaptation to environmental changes in photosynthetic organisms, but specifically looking at um, the role of like light sensing. So these are like phytochromes, so there's like... Um, structures, protein structures inside plants, which can basically sense light and use that to tell the plant what to do. So like if it's really dark, they say, hey, it's really dark. We might be shaded or we we might need to grow taller to get out of the shade. So, you know, if there's a lot of darkness, they grow really, really tall. Um, And it's a really, really important thing in, in how plants grow and develop. But it's also something that's particularly dear to my heart um, because I guess I was studying chloroplast development. Yoram was also like chloroplast development person. So although we weren't really involved in these light signaling networks too much, me a bit more than you, um, it's definitely kind of in our remit, I would say. Um, so I'll just go quickly to her website. So at um, MSU, yeah, I think it's photomorphogenesis. So this is morphogenesis is like movement, like growth and movement and photo is towards light. So it's really looking at this um, and it's primary research focused on how photosynthetic organisms are responding to external um, light cues. So this is all pretty cool already, I would say. But um, even more so, Baronda is also very strongly involved in science communication and also in mentoring. So um, making sure that not only that mentorship happens, but also that it's done in a way that fosters equity and inclusion in academia. And in 2020, um, Baronda Montgomery became one of the, the first co-founders and co-organizers of um, Black Botanist Week. Um, which was kind of going around. You've probably, probably heard of that already. Um, and she also, I mean, she's just really amazing on this side. So she was part of the advisory board of 500 women um, scientists and does a lot of work into sort of mentorship um, and development and stuff like that. So I hadn't heard of her until a few weeks ago when I was, you know, doom scrolling on Instagram and um, Jonathan Vaness, who is somebody from Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, it popped up saying, there's a live, there's like a live um, feed from, live story feed from Jonathan Vaness. And it was him like going through his garden at home and talking with her while she was sort of commenting on his his plants and, and his gardens. And the reason they had a link is because she's appeared, I think, recently on his podcast. I saw that. You saw that. <laughs> I saw the live stream. And I sent it to exactly. my spouse and uh, she, she wasn't quick enough to, to join in because she's more into gardening than I am. But I saw that. And since then, I follow her. You saw her it because I sent it to you. Uh, yeah, you sent it to me. No, I saw that because um, <laughs> I had an intuition on uh-huh. my own volition. I saw that. You sent that to me. Yeah. I remember now. You sent that to me and yeah. I joined that live stream. I was super exciting because I, I like... It was really cool. 
yeah, I like him. Um, he has this like extreme energy that I really enjoy. Um, and she was so like she she said some things. I was immediately going to my wife. I'm I'm, I'm sorry, like some some plants. She was talking about like why some plants have yellow leaves, and she's like, yeah, can be overwatering um, because then the like the the flow of nutrients can can get messed up, and then the plants can be chlorotic, and then they become yellow. Um, and I saw some of the, like some yellow leaves on some of my my wife's plants. I was like, you know what? <laughs> they could be overwatering or something with the nutrients in the soil. There, something I, just, I had like literally picked up forty five minutes ago, <laughs> and was immediately like being mad. You've learned something already, <laughs> but you learned something already. I mean, that's like that was just really charming because it was it was so casual, but like also quite informative and just so. It was a nice way to get introduced to her. And as you said, now you're following her. I'm also following her on Twitter now. But the reason that she's she's popping up um, different places, apart from that, that she's like brilliant, is because she's releasing a book um, uh, at the end of this month. So 2021 Lessons from Plants is coming out. And I've also already mentioned this to people in our plant book club and said we have to absolutely read this book. Um, because it sounds super amazing and super in our wheelhouse. Um just um, to kind of discuss that a little bit more, she also had a um, worldview that came out in Nature like just last week sometime, so on the 13th of April, and it's called My Most Memorable Mentors, Plants. And again, she discusses these ideas of how you can learn a lot from plants. So I'm just going to read out a like one section quickly from that. That plants with different aptitude grow and survive differently depending on their environment helps me think about how to help colleagues thrive. For instance, going from an observation such as spotting yellow leaves on a tobacco plant to listening to listing its potential causes, overwatering, underwatering, nitrogen deficiency, might prompt ideas about, say, how to support graduate students. Are their presentation slides poorly prepared because of boredom, confusion, anxiety or overwork, or is the reason family or financial stress? So this comes up a few different times in her work where she's talking really about how we shouldn't be focusing on like single measurements of success and we shouldn't be looking, you know, using the same scale, but also giving everybody equal treatment. We should be looking for equitable treatment where we try to nourish people based on their, not, on their needs, not just like watering every single plant the same mm -hmm. way. And similar to that, she also goes back to an idea that we've already come across um, in in our other side gigs, so in our in our plant book club. And this is when we read the book of Robin Wall Kimmerer. So this it's called Braiding Sweetgrass, and in that um, Robin Wall Kimmerer talks about the idea that indigenous people used to plant. Um, multiple plants together. So they planted beans with corn and squash. And the idea was that these three different plants all have different roles. So beans, um, they're nitrogen fixers, so they, they enrich the soil. It's like fertilizing. The corn sort of can grow very tall, um, but then the, the beans can use the, the stalk of the corn to grow around it. Um, there's also like protection from... from uh, pests um squashes grow wide so they suppress other weeds from growing like there's this kind of symbiosis and again she uses this as a lesson where she says that this is a a biological metaphor and she runs her lab in the way where instead of looking at how one person does you sort of discuss how everyone in the team can help support like you know by working together you all build each other up 
Um, and this is like a theme that's come across in multiple of her um, like writings. So she also has a blog and um, she discusses this idea of... Um, let me just have a look. Like we have the, we have these ways of ranking scientists where you basically have something like an H index where you say, oh, H is like high impact. That person has like done lots of important work that has been cited very highly. So somebody with a higher H index is a better scientist. And I'm using a little quote there. And she has a blog post um, that again, I'll link to where she talks about how she designed her own B index, which was based on the fact that her vision for herself was not to like get the most credit. It was that she thought that it was, you know, better to be kind of like building this environment and, and like she didn't have the same aims. She didn't want to have that output. So setting herself up to be measured by that yardstick was just setting herself up from failure for failure. And um, this is again, something that comes across, multiple times in her writings um i'll put a few links to them but it sounds really really cool there's there's a few different pieces of work that will link um from her i personally can't wait to read the book i think i've already got some other people in our book club on board so i think that might be coming up kind of soon um and there are also some different uh, lectures that are available online again i'll link them there so plante had her um as a part of their webinar series. I think she was a Plante member for a little while. I mean, she has, oh no, American Society of Microbiology, but yeah, um, she, she of course has a lot of awards and honors. Um, she's a distinguished lecturer. She's, she's part of different, um, like the American Association for the Advancements of Scientists, the American Academy of Microbiology. So obviously she, is a brilliant scientist, but also a brilliant science communicator and also has this really important understanding of like how to make better science and better scientists. Um, so we'll put a lot of links in there. I haven't watched all of the the lectures so far, but that's, that's on my to-do list. Um, I'm pretty excited. Cool. Thank you for bringing that and reminding me of that awesome live video. Um, I really like that. And something that we will talk about later again about like good science communication but now let's move on let's talk 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 about bias bias so today i don't really have a bias i have more of a comment um and <laughs> no it's not really a comment it's <laughs> another story about uh, microaggressions um something that i found uh, this week it's already an older paper um it's called language matters considering micro uh, microaggressions in science um published in cbe life sciences education uh, by colin harrison and kimberly d tanner and uh, the authors discuss here first of all the concept of microaggressions um, something that we've been trying to do all throughout this show so far <laughs> with microaggressions yeah, <laughs> and um, what where they are in science what the harm is and how to counter them and I found that quite interesting so do you want to say what a microaggression is do you have a good definition no I was this is the thing I was discussing with my housemate and I was like it's something where it's not like a blatant statement saying you're worse because you're female, but it's um, using slightly more subtle language to nonetheless imply that. So um, 
Yeah, like something like like oh, um, it's surprising to see a woman do so so well in the lab. Like that would be, I mean, that's that's quite a large microaggression. It's not so micro to me, but like it's it's definitely something where it's like oh, like this is not your place. There's there's a lot of these small things of of like just to imply that that person does not belong or should not have the same rights or privileges that you do. Yeah. And uh, um, the two authors actually have a very nice analogy that they're using in the in their paper. Um, and they say, like, imagine someone is, like, poking you with their finger. And, like, one individual poking is not very harsh or very mean or um, very hurtful. But, um, and if that happens, like, infrequently, you might not even care. Like, it's just, some like, sometimes, like, you've been poked twice this didn't affect you a lot but imagine like now you're being poked repeatedly every day when a specific person comes to you they poke you and so you start worrying about like when will you be poked the next time yeah like you you want to work in a professional context but you always have to be worried that somebody's going to poke you and then the poking itself can sort of leave bruises that over time the poking starts to hurt more or you might have mm -hmm. some other injuries from before and the people are poking that place and while the mm -hmm. poking in itself might not if you just isolate the poking it might not be very bad or very mean or very evil but poking just the the worst spot on your body repeatedly over time um is extremely excruciating to your mental well-being and i think that's like the 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 big problem with microaggressions and addressing them is that when you point out that individual instance of poking, most people are going to say, what's your problem? It was just a gentle poke. Like it was just like a small thing. And that's, you know, for people then dealing with that and responding to that, it can be very hard to explain why it's so bad unless you have the context, right? And if you just say, oh, there was that one time where Yoram asked me to get him a sandwich, like that's <laughs> without the background of like... yeah gender expectations it's not clear right there's these kind of things there's these things and then also sort of the inverse when you start questioning yourself like you feel the pain but you're like but it's just poking so something must be wrong with me that it hurts me so much why does it hurt me so much like i must be wrong in some way um when it's still the poking from outside that triggers that and that that makes you feel hurt um therefore like I, I quite like this analogy because it shows that like it's it's not trivial, even though the in individual poking might seem harmless. And when you just watch or, or witness one event, it might not be very bad. And in the paper, they also have a couple of um, suggestions, like like uh, examples um, that they go through, um, and they separate like the microaggressions into micro assaults, micro insults, and micro invalidations. And um, I want to um, just mention a few of them. I found them all quite offensive uh, immediately, but apparently for some people, this is something you might just say. For example, I am literally like reading these and playing bingo and ding, ding, ding. I've pretty much <laughs> come across every single one of them. Yeah, like it starts with like, it's so gay that we can't get this essay to work correctly. As in like, it's so bad. It's so annoying that we can't get it to work correctly. And obviously here you want to say something is bad and you use the word for a sexual orientation uh, in there and without actually saying like that you think that homosexuals are bad you're implying that like you link that to something bad 
um, and that's a microaggression. I've got to say, I've done that in the 2000s. Like that was a thing that came in and it got into my vocabulary and I had to work really hard to get it out. Like it was like... Absolutely. It was freaking everywhere. And like, I'm so ashamed of that. But like, and I, I remember saying it once, like, and in front of one of our friends who was gay and then just being like, oh my God, like, that's, why is this a thing? Like, this is. Yeah. But also yeah, in German, I, I've we said had that. that. Like, we had that so much in, 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 in German as well. Um, yeah. And, and only, I think in the last decade or so, it only changed um, for, for the better. Yeah, and if it's you go still and, like, done in some places. If you go and, like, watch um, the OC or something, like, from that early 2000 era, you're like, wow, though. But wow. Yeah. Um, then there's another one. <laughs> not that, that we're saying that it's all fixed now. No, no, <laughs> not, not at all. Not at all. But, like, I think there's more awareness now than there was a decade ago. Like you would see it in more sort of common mainstream media, pop culture things 10, 10 years or 15 years ago in Germany than you would see now. Um, then another one, like Microsoft is like, it's a shame you are having kids in graduate school. You could have really been something special. Um, degrading women and implying that women who who have a family they can't be successful in science. Um, I think if you if you talk to any woman in science, they will have their own personal story of something similar happening to them. Um, then um, then there's like insults, something I think we tried on this show before today. I I didn't do well, but oh well, girls aren't supposed to be good at science anyway. Ha ha ha. So again, implying that women can't be great at science and therefore degrading all women and not just like your own personal failure, which could be fine to point out, but you're doing that by pulling everybody of the same uh, um, sex down with you. Um and then other things like micro-invalidations where you just invalidate other people's experiences. Something like, um, the book is expensive, but it shouldn't be an issue. Just have your pa parents pay for it. Um, or we only focus on males mating with females in this class because that is all we care about in genetics. Um, things like that are also like degrading the experience of people with like lower income or um, mentioning that you don't care about non-heterosexual non experiences for example um, and i think these things are still fairly common in science um, not always out of like malicious intent uh, but out of like neglect or being unaware of it and habit and habit and yeah like growing up or like experiencing these these terms during like a very impressionable phase or something like we had with the word gay um and it takes conscious effort to get over these things you can't just and also i mean it's 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 like yeah it's this thing of like if you are trying to get into a club that doesn't normally have you as a member and you hear these microaggressions it's really hard to shut them down because like like these are you don't want to draw attention right so mm -hmm. it's definitely stuff that it's it's much easier to just kind of like let it happen yeah if it's happening to you um yeah i think that's like this again the key to me is like other people have to also have to be helping point these out and you know yeah yeah that's some they discuss in in the paper some of the um, strategies to deal with that and it's very complicated um, because also as somebody who's being poked all the time uh, then having also the burden of pointing out that you're being poked and explaining it just adds sort of insult to injury um, because 
then you have also the mental burden to better the situation. So you really rely on others. And then the to, additional mental burden of somebody telling you that you're overreacting and it's not a real thing and, yeah. you know. So, for example, in the, exam uh, in, in the situation where somebody says, um, it's so gay that we can't get this essay to work correctly. Um, they say, like, if this happens, for example, in a lab meeting, the PI is presenting somebody uh, something, um, some, some work, and somebody who was involved with the work is saying the sentence, it's so gay that we can't get this essay to work correctly. Um, then a third person could intervene and be like, hey, I don't think uh, we should use this, uh, this, the word gay to describe something that's not working. Um, I don't think it's, a, uh, it's appropriate. Um, and then offer to discuss this later on um, after sort of the lab meeting and then give sort of the word back to the person giving the presentation, in this case, the PI. Um, and it, it takes effort to do these things, but they suggest in the paper that this is one way that you could potentially go through, uh, through such a situation when you witness a microaggression happening like this. Um, because you can't expect them to, like, if you have an openly gay person in your lab group, that they are the ones to stand up and point this out. Why? Why would they have to do have that burden? It has to be you when you witness the microaggression. Um, calling I, that out. I I saw I saw one version. I'm not sure if this works for the the workplace, but I thought it was really funny in the context. Um, there was a woman who was saying that she basically got like some mild sexual, like inappropriate comment of like some guy kind of just making a sexual pass at her in in a really not okay way. And she just, like, pretended she didn't understand what he meant. <laughs> and then he had to, like, explain in detail how what he was saying was actually him talking about his penis <laughs> and him putting it in her. And she was just like, oh, I just, what? Like, I'm, I mean, obviously, that does, like, this is not what we should be doing, but, like, it gave I mean, me joy. She, like it, a... gave, it gave her joy. It gave me, like, everybody had joy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sometimes in some of these things, it could work out, especially when it's like uh, comments about like sexuality or women specifically. You could be like, but what do you mean? Like women, you don't have to know that because of women. Like, well, how does like this relate to your body? Um, uh, and then there start... is like that education thing where like, like, like yeah, a lot of people who say like, oh, that's so gay or something like that. Like if they don't think about why they're saying it, if you say like, oh, why did you use the word gay? And they're like, oh, I, I don't... And then you say like, oh, because like you were saying a bad thing. Is that is that what you're meaning? Are you saying that being gay... Like sometimes it's it's not that they... It's like that that um that connection hasn't been made in their mind. Um, mm -hmm. Or they might not know the roots of the word. So I think I was only like three or four years ago that I found out that the word to be gypped, like if you're gypped, that's coming from like gypsies. That's a slur. Like that's not... So this is mm. something that we used a lot growing up. Like, oh, like that person gypped me. And I, in my mind, I've never seen it written down. I thought it was J-I-P-P-E-D. And then somebody explained, no, this is like completely not appropriate. It's a horrible thing. Like, mm -hmm. but like, so there's like, I mean, I think it's not the case with something like gay, obviously, but like they, somebody might be aware of it, but not really, like they're habitually doing it, not really making the connection of why they're saying the thing. And same with like the women thing, like, yeah. ah, ha, ha, like maths is hard. Like they're saying that because that's what they've been told and what everybody says. And then if you say, oh, that's interesting. Do you really think like that women do find it hard to do maths? And then if they're scientists, you can say, oh, I'd really love to see the studies on that. Like, have you got studies on that? Like, do you actually think that, like, like we have different brains? Like, do you think there's, like, different structures in our brain that make that hot? Like, you can kind of press it a little bit, but, like, in a kind of curious way. And I think that can be helpful. Yeah, 
Yeah, but at the same time, also in the paper, they stress that um, it's very dependent on the situation, on the power dynamics, on your own involvement and so on. Um, so there's not one solution that fits for everything. Um, but I want to end on one important point here, and that is how that shapes the scientific environment to be inclusive and diverse. Because these microaggressions, um, they can uh, impede people from learning, from engaging with science, and from belonging, feeling um, as a sort of belongingness to the scientific um, system or the academic system. And that means that you drive um, certain groups away by allowing microaggressions to happen. Because if you imagine that like a, a certain group of people, maybe linked to their skin color, are poked way more often than other people in your, in your, uh, in your institute, then obviously the people who are poked all the time they will not enjoy being poked all the time and find other careers. Um, and that comes not only as a, at a personal loss for the people who have to look for another career, but also to a loss to science as a system, because we talked about this so often here, a less diverse system is a worse system. But it's also that thing where you like you look around one day and you're like, why are we just surrounded by like mediocre cis white dudes? I just, did, yeah. did we do something? And it's like, yeah, yeah, you did. <laughs> Yeah, it you, you didn't poke them enough, or you poke other people too <laughs> no, often. More, more, that's more specifically, not the solution is not to harass <laughs> more, others. I mean, <laughs> we need more sure. diverse microaggressions against everyone. No, no, we need less microaggressions. So the the final thing about this story is that this is not only relevant for this academic system that microaggressions are hindering the betterment of the academic setting, but also for science communication um, because when you um, use microaggressions in your science communication and you might do like versions that are much milder than the ones that we had in the in the examples here um, but that will reinforce a, a kind of othering where you when you talk for example to um, people of color who are visiting your institute during an open day and you make some sort of comment of implying like oh it's nice that they're showing interest um, and you mean that in the best way of like, yeah, it's generally nice that people show interest. And um, but in that context, it might be understood as like, oh, it's nice that you people of color, you show interest in science. Um, you're driving people away. You're not creating an inclusive environment where people are actually interested in learning what you're saying. Um, you're creating an environment of us, the scientists with, versus you, the visitors. Um, that is not welcoming and therefore not effective in science communication so microaggressions also play a very important role when you are communicating uh, research to people and um, i found it quite interesting to have that to see that pointed out like that because i knew about the concept of microaggressions before but i never really thought about them in terms of sort of like professional communication where they totally happen as well. Um, so yeah, I quite liked um, reading through that paper with like lots of examples and some approaches to deal with it. Um, so the paper that we're linking also is called Language Matters, Considering Microaggressions in Science by Colin Harrison and Kimberly D. Tanner, published in CBE Life Science Education from 2018. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. There was a story in the New York Times, and it's a little bit old, but I don't think we've done it yet. Um, and it is written by Sabrina Imbler. It came out in December last year, and it's called He Was a Stick, She Was a Leaf, Together They Made History. 
And it's not actually about sticks and leaves. I'm cheating once again and talking about non-plant, plant-like things. Um, these are kind of stick or leaf insects, which look suspiciously like sticks and leaves, but in fact move and have more legs than a normal stick or leaf might have. And it's just um, a classic story of people growing a, a bug. Like they have eggs of a certain type of bug. It's called Philium asenc. Kiense, that's the species. Um, they're a rare leaf insect from Papua New Guinea. They look really beautiful. So it, it's like looks like this this lovely green leaf, and it has even its legs have kind of leaf-like structures around um, the legs to make them more leafy. Anyway, um, they're they're quite they're quite rare specimens, and they're hard to grow in captivity. Um, and at one point um, in the Montreal Insectarium, they got their hands on thirteen eggs. Um, they tried to hatch them and grow them and, you know, some of the eggs hatched and they got these like the nymphs, like the first stage of the bugs. Um, but only five eggs hatched into nymphs and they started, you know, trying to, to feed them and grow them. And some of them just didn't eat and immediately died. Um, some of them did okay. And then three of them sort of made it through. And one of them grew into be like a, a beautiful green and broad leaf, like the mother insect. But then two of the other ones didn't become leaves. They became sticks instead. And they also became winged sticks. And it was at that point they realized that, in fact, what they had always previously thought were two species were one species. So <laughs> the stick-like winged things resembled really closely another completely different genus of insects um, called Nanophilium which had six different species described. But those six species had been described only from male specimens. <laughs> and as it turned out, the reason was because um, the females looked less like sticks and more like leaves and belonged to this believed to be different um, genus. And I, I really like these stories because I think this, this happened in 2018, which is like incredibly recent. Um, but it, it brings me back to some of those original stories that fascinated me about science. So I remember hearing these stories about parrots when I grew up, how they would collect different rare parrots and they had like a red parrot and a blue parrot. And no matter what they did, the red parrots would not mate with the other red parrots. They could never get little baby red parrots. And it took them like hundreds of years before somebody accidentally left a cage door open. The red parrots went at it with the blue parrots and suddenly they had a whole lot of offspring. And they're like, oh, like <laughs> that's the the red male parrot. That's the re the, the blue female parrot or whatever. Um and I, I love it. I love it because it's just such a traditional kind of like like fascinating story, but it also really shows the problem with just using like how something looks to determine whether it's a species or not. Like, yeah. especially when it comes to like non-mammals, non-birds. Like, if we start looking at like insects, if we go even smaller and look at bacteria, like it's really really hard to make these like morphological distinctions. Um, and I think it's lovely, and these little bugs look kind of lovely as well. So. Yeah, <laughs> check out that article. Yeah, that sounds very cool. Uh, I have a story that I want to mention only very briefly, but sort of to have it done, to check it off. Um, researchers from Bayreuth and Göttingen um, in Germany, they call for a combination of uh, organic farming with new breeding technologies. And I just want to mention that because very often it's presented as this sort of dichotomy of either you are 
G pro gmo and conventional farming and you want to have like the large corn fields and the big ha combine harvesters or you are pro organic farming and you want like somebody picking all the weeds by hand um when in fact like everything this it's like a spectrum it's a gradient you find all kinds of solutions along this gradient and one of them as some researchers call for now is combining what we recently learned with tools like CRISPR and so on to combine that with some of the stuff we learned from organic farming to make a sort of a new kind of farming like a better organic farming or a better um, sort of Uh, genetically modified farming that takes the advantages from both and if you think about it it's really it's really not that hard to come up with the idea but in the sort of political landscape and if you talk to people but you didn't this is a new thing. <laughs> i mean it's it's an idea that i've, wow. that I've, I've heard before like at, at like smaller scale but now there's sort of like um a study and an, uh, a sort of serious call to action by researchers um um, wanting to change uh, EU legislation so that it would actually become possible for organic farmers to use gene-edited crops in organic farming to take advantage of both systems, to have like the increased biodiversity that you often get with organic farming, but also the increased resistance against pests, climate changes, um, weather conditions that you might get from genome editing. So, I just want to mention that for completion. Check out the pre press release with um, more information that we're linking. That actually um, reminds me, I saw something in Nature a few days back. Hang on a second. Yeah, um, so at the end of March, there was um, a an article discussing the fact, oh, I think it was in Nature Sustainability, um, that higher yields and more diversity can be found on smaller farms. Um, so it's like a relationship between the size of the farm and its production, profitability, biodiversity, and also greenhouse gas emissions was kind of looked at at a large scale. And um, yeah, there's not a lot of difference for resource use efficiency and um, gas, greenhouse gas emissions or profits. Um, but the smaller size farms um, have greater both crop and non-crop biodiversity which can be like kind of important theoretically for large scale yeah i i hope that with like new studies but also sort of a shift in in the awareness we might actually get a sort of system that benefits from like takes the best of both worlds together really without being driven by any dogma like any anti-organic or anti-gm dogma because like i've known people who are really anti-organic um, which is also not really helpful because none of these two systems are inherently and 100% bad or good. So looking I mean, at them the critically is... and picking the stuff that works and then combining that is a straightforward and smart thing to do, in my opinion. But politically or in, a, in, a, in, in public opinion, it's more complex than that. I mean, there's, there's a lot of problem where, like, there's also linkages. So, like, it's like you can be like, oh, I'm, I'm not against GMOs, but, you know, I'm, I'm not super pro, like, a, a big company having so much power. Like, that that does make me un, uneasy. Yeah. On the other side, like, I'm not against organic farming, but I am against people saying that's that will save the planet. It, it won't. It will not be able to feed the planet. And I'm also not very comfortable about the fact that it's often linked to other types of things that are magical and anti-science so like on, on both sides i can there's these like exactly link problems right yeah 
Um, I also have a really quick one um, that actually my mum sent me. It's something news from Perth. Um, there's a university in Perth. It's called Murdoch University. Actually, my mum used to work there. I think that's why she sent it through. Um, and they are have the world first in using this clear solar glass um, to make a greenhouse. So it looks really, really cool. Um, yeah, I'm just going to link you now and you can have a, a pretty look at how mm-hmm. how pretty it is. It's there. Um, it just looks like kind of a, a fairly normal, um, clear greenhouse. Um, but the glass panes are actually uh, designed to be like solar panels. So they're, they're generating electricity. And also the glass, it's transmitting like up to 70% of the visible light. So you can like the plants are still getting quite a lot of light to grow. And also like just keep in mind, this is Australia. So like knocking out that 30%, probably not a bad thing for the plants you're growing. Um, but also the light panes are, uh, the glass panes, sorry, are filtering out the UV light. And there's some discussion that this might help grow the plants grow more rapidly because they don't have to put energy into things like UV protection, like developing these kind of waxy cuticles and sunscreen layers that they, they would have to um, develop if they didn't have that that protection. So... Yeah, I, I think the the glass panels that are also um, solar panels is kind of sweet. Yeah, it's interesting because we talked about this a couple of shows ago um, about a study where they did sort of preliminary things wh- without the actual solar cells, but just with lights, light um, sheets of glass that had the same um, spectrum properties as the solar cells would and did the test if the plants would grow better or as the same or worse than under regular glass and I found that this wouldn't impede them but they didn't actually construct a full greenhouse with the solar panels in place so it's quite interesting to see that somebody else did that now and that it works so really cool well I mean it's just been built now we know that it was built we don't know the outcome I guess I think these two things happen probably in parallel but in the sort of the timeline of this podcast one comes after the other and it works well so I quite like that and my next story is um, about science communication in plant sciences and it's something um, where I actually took the reference from that we talked about in the bias section about the microaggressions um, it's called broadening the impact of plant science through innovative integrative and inclusive outreach um, and it's a fairly long document um, by a number of authors um, it's under it's like open access published it's by uh, Joanna Friesner um, from the last author is uh, Jose Dineni, but I don't actually know if they have like how much they contributed. It might be that they all contributed quite equally. So actually, I should either list all of the names or, <laughs> or none at all. Um, just have a what? look at the author list. It's quite long, um, and they wrote like this massive compendium on. Um, science outreach in plant sciences and first i i looked at this and i have to say i was a little bit negative because i was like you want to talk about how to do concise good outreach and then you make like a 28 page document with some yeah but they cut it down from like graphics hmm? i was gonna say yeah but they edited it down from 90 so it was concise <laughs> Maybe i'm just that. being surly <laughs> but they're also touching on many many different aspects giving um 
giving examples of successful projects um, as sort of inspiration, um, giving an introduction why outreach is important. So depending from where you're starting, what your background is, you might not even have to read all of the 28 pages to learn something from it. And in the 28 pages, and I, I didn't read all of them, I only discovered this yesterday, so I didn't have the time, um, but they talk about things like the importance of um, diversity uh, and um, microaggressions. As I mentioned before, that's where I actually found a reference. Um, in, in outreach, um, they say to, to tackle these challenges, so the challenges of overcoming, for example, um, um, the disproportionate attention to, towards plant sciences that are getting less attention than people dealing with medical sciences and so on, um, they're saying that to tackle these challenges, a talented, passionate, and diverse community of plant scientists will be needed. And that's what they're talking about here. And what I specifically liked, so I'm recommending everybody this as a sort of good reading if you are interested in outreach in plant sciences. Um, they end on an eight-point plan to have better outreach. And what I like is that they don't start with the usual stuff because if I would just off the top of my head write like eight points that people should do for more outreach without putting any thought into it, and we're like, get on social media, um, engage with some people locally and so on, um, and sort of focus on what you can as an individual do for your outreach. And their first point is actually lobby your dean to recognize outreach as a valued component of academic excellence. Um, oh, and they wow. have a couple of things where they're addressing like we need a systemic change or um, a systemic um, valuing of uh, of outreach to make to have good outreach because if you are punished by your institution for being engaged in outreach, either you won't be doing it or it won't have the same quality or it will make like drive you away from the academic system. So we first have to have a welcoming system for outreach activities. And then we can improve the outreach activities. And I quite like that because I haven't seen that in such a list, in such a context well, that, before. That fits really well with Baronda, who we were talking about earlier in the show. I mean, this was like her B index was really about like, make this be an important thing about, you know, mentoring and developing the community and don't only judge on how much you publish. So yeah, super yeah. poignant. Yeah. Cool. So I think um, like I saved this as a PDF, so I will put that into my folder of like high quality resources to to develop my uh, my own outreach activities, and I will have um, a deeper look into this. I know that they're like presenting, for example, the Taproot podcast in there. They're presenting some like uh, local outreach activities. It's very US centric, I have to say. They're talking a lot about like the the education system in the United States, which is very different from the education system, for example, in Europe. Um, so your mileage may vary um, in the usefulness of these sections, but they have other parts that are um, more trans, uh, transferable and therefore valuable for people outside the United States. So um, I think it's actually good that it's 28 pages long because it gives them room to proper de properly develop ideas instead of just briefly mentioning them. So yeah, check that out. Um. Oh, I wanted to quickly mention a preprint that I think I think I saw it through the Nature Briefing, so some of you might have seen this, um, but it seems worthwhile mentioning it to Yoram, just because I know what he's doing with um, his child right now. There's a paper for designing a high-resolution Lego-based microscope for an educational setting. Yay! Um, it's a preprint, so I think that's definitely up your alley. 
and um, they were sort of developing these using Lego bricks. Um, the lenses, I think, were sort of like old lenses from phones. So like that was the only non-Lego part was the lens of the microscope. Um, they have the instructions to sort of set it all up. And they were doing it with um, school-age students who were like 9 to 13 years old. So then using it as like, you know, you build it, but also a learning school, a tool to understand how microscopy works effectively. Mm-hmm. So. I think um, this is something that you'll definitely have to be trying yourself at home in the near future. Yeah, definitely. Like, I can't wait to build all kinds of, like, fancy Lego machines. But also there's, like, this fold scope. It's, like, a paper-based foldable microscope where you, that you can buy as a kit and then you just assemble it very easily. Um, and then you can also, like, use your smartphone as an image capture device and then have some pretty decent microscopy images with it and there's even studies being done with that i think for malaria research um because you oh, wow. the the resolution is good enough that you can actually see this parasite um that causes malaria and have you um, tried it or you haven't i haven't tried it myself but i've talked to people who have um and they were very into it uh and it's very accessible i mean it's obviously with these things you trade off some of the like comfort features of a decent microscope with like proper focusing and so on but at the same time the whole thing costs like less than five dollars to assemble um and then together with your smartphone you get something where you can get quite a good resolution on very small details so yeah there's lots of really really cool low tech but high impact um, technologies now yeah, and talking about sort of DIY solutions, I have a paper um, that I that I found. It's on a uh, it's a preprint paper, um, broad scale applications of the Raspberry Pi, a review and guide for biologists. And this is not about baking pies with raspberries. It's about a little microcomputer, um, and this is a collection of different projects that people in science. Um, where they used Raspberry Pi microcomputers to construct their own devices for all kinds of different things. They did it for like plant phenotyping, high-throughput animal recordings, dedicated plant growth cabinets, 3D-printed microscopes, RFID-equipped bird feeder, long-term monitoring for fish behavior, automated bird puzzle boxes, autonomous underwater camera system, and the list goes on. And this is a review of the capabilities of this Raspberry Pi system and how you can use that for your own science. Um, instead of buying like dedicated, expensive, complicated lab equipment, very often you might have more su- success in building your own machine because with the Raspberry Pi and all of the resources available for it, it doesn't actually take a lot of prior knowledge to build a machine that can do a very specific task for your research. Um, so, yeah, they go through, like, materials you might need, what hardware you might need, uh, where to get software, and so on, um, that you can actually really build or start designing your own experiment setup using a Raspberry Pi in it. And I find that quite cool, because this is also something where, like, in the hobby sector, there's lots and lots of projects where you have sort of meaningless contraptions that teach you something about com- computing and are therefore interesting. But, like, their purpose is, like, another display in your house that tells you what the weather is like when already like your phone and your watch and your computer and everything tells you what the weather is like you build another device that can do that and you learn something so it's cool but in this case the raspberry pi is actually making better science available to researchers at a lower cost so Mm -hmm. um 
yeah, I think quite a cool paper um, by, let me just quickly scroll up so I get, the, it's by one uh, author called Jolle W. Jollis uh, from uh, Konstanz in Germany. Okay, my last couple of things I want to mention are related to sort of AI. Um, so a few weeks back, um, one of our close friends sent me an article and was like, I saw this and I thought of you. And it's just called An Autonomous Debating System. So it's basically, um, it was published in Nature. It's basically just um, people <laughs> design something. It's called Project Debater. And it's an autonomous debating system that can engage in a competitive debate with humans. And frankly, I have no idea why this was suggested for me. Um, <laughs> perhaps unsurprisingly, a couple of weeks later, also in, also in Nature, um, the editorial was uh, titled, um, Am I Arguing with a Machine? AI Debaters Highlight Need for Transparency. So discussing, you know, what the sort of ethical issues come from AIs and, you know, bringing up these kind of old problems we've seen where AIs are, are biased because of the humans who design them and, and these biases can sort of tumble out of control. And we've seen that with, you know, the, the AI system that started, you know, hurling racist and sexist insults after like two hours of being online, right? Yeah. Um, so that's also discussed. Um, and then <laughs> that sort of led me to a another thing, which is, um, the blog of Janelle Shane, um, and maybe you've seen this already, Yaram, but it's uh, GPT-3 tries pickup lines. So again, this is <laughs> I like... I have seen that, but it sounds... Oh, it's so good. It's so good. Great. So, <laughs> yeah, we're going to have to spend like a little bit of time on this. So basically, um, she was using the like a neural net, neural network, is that what it is, um, mm -hmm. to develop pickup lines. And she used different variants. Um, so the first one is Da Vinci, which is kind of like the biggest and most competent. Um, some examples of the pickup lines <laughs> that I really liked was, um, I'm losing my voice from all the screaming your hotness is causing me to do. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I love you. I don't care if you're a doggo in a trench coat. <laughs> Um, and what's another really good one? You look like Jesus if he were a butler in a Russian mansion, which like none of those things <laughs> makes any sense. Um, <laughs> next up was Curie, so um, a little bit smaller than Da Vinci, but kind of the, the, the second le most complex of of the the, the four that were used. Um, what's <laughs> what's a really good one? You are the best French toast I ever had. <laughs> Um, and then, hey, my name is John Smith. Will you sit on my bread box while I cook, or is there some kind of speed limit on that thing? Um, Babbage was the next one. I think um, Babbage is actually my favorite because it explains why its pickup lines are good. So, firstly, it has what I would say is objectively the best pickup lines of all of them. And I would just like anybody out there who wants to be woo, and I, I reckon you would note this down right now, pause the podcast, write it down. The, the pickup line is simple. You are looking good today, want snacks. And that just seems to me, yes. Um <laughs> But then it, it also has a pickup line, which is, have you stolen anything today? And then that comes with an explanation. This line is used by buying a second date. One of the motivations for this line is to avoid the awkward subjectivity of asking somebody what you have stolen out of their 
garden tool shed or somewhere else. You may say something like, hey, I've decided to steal your car and use it for a short trip from work. This is a super <laughs> sh- casual yet shocking pickup line. <laughs> So like I, I do like that a lot. Um, and then the final one was Ada. So that's the the smallest no, of the. First, the, the if variant. I have listened, I also want to mention that there's the pickup line. It's just like, "Will you marry me?" Which I think yes. is a little bit quick. To and it is, it's very effective because "Will you" is very powerful and intimate. And also like, I love you, I love you, I love you to the confines of death and disease, the legions of earth rejoices. Woe be to the world. <laughs> I like that. As a casual first like opening pickup line, maybe when you're standing in the in the queue at the at the shop together, you can start with that. Yeah, I think Babbage gave the best in my opinion. <laughs> I think that like just like you're looking good today, <laughs> want snacks. Um <laughs> I'm just seeing the next ones in the list. Yeah, and then Ada is like the smallest and I think objectively the worst. Um, although one of the pickup lines was cape fashion and like we all like capes. Um, Growler style FX, future pop tarts by Tracy Thorne, funny nifty sweaters fifteen ninety nine, etc. etc. Like um, <laughs> I like limit to one purchase in stores. <laughs> Yeah, we'll put the link there. Definitely go and give it a click and then send it to all of your friends because it, it made me really happy. And Yeah, and if you're yeah. into the dating game and using any sort of online dating, I urge you to use some of these pickup lines and send us the screenshots if it's like privacy okay. <laughs> I would love to see the reaction of some people um, to something like, like, I have exactly four stickers. I need you to be the fifth. <laughs> I mean, I I definitely sent it to somebody I'm talking to, and I did not get any snacks yet. So, like, was that too subtle a hint? Cat fact. Uh, yeah, I have. A, I found. I found the answer today when looking for a cat fact about why does my cat love sitting on my laptop. And I'm all sparing you an article that's full of ads um, by telling you it's your smell. Uh, the cats smell your what? finger no. grease and um, the cats no. like to rub themselves on stuff that smells like you. That's why when you have like a jumper lying about, it smells like you. A cat will sit on it. That's why it rubs its body against your legs to sort of indicate by rubbing its own smell on your smell that you belong to the cat. And they're trying the same with your computer, most likely, because the computer smells like you. And by rubbing themselves on your smell, they're telling that you belong to the cat. And that's fairly common with cats and other aspects as well. Like, it's based on statements by a cat behavior behavior scientist, so not really any research done. Um, so maybe there could be another reason, but they say, like, like the heat might also be a factor of like the heat of a computer, but um, cats are not constantly searching the hottest space in a room. Like they enjoy when it's warm, but there might be places in a room that are warmer than your computer and it still goes to your computer. And that it's because it's very, it smells very much like you. So earlier this week, for completely an unrelated reason, I was trying to work out what the opposite of Occam's razor was. So like Occam's razor is like if, you're looking for a solution, the most obvious thing is probably the right thing. So instead of like making up some, you know, if you come into a room and 
there's a, a jug of cream knocked over and your cat is sitting there, it's probably better to assume that the cat knocked it over than to assume that like a stranger walked into the room, poured out the milk and then left. Um, that's Occam's razor. But I was like trying to wonder what the opposite of Occam's razor is. And there's something called Hickam's dictum. Um, <laughs> I've heard that. I didn't know that it yeah. was that. And Hickam's dictum is basically the fact that it's not quite the opposite. It's like the idea that in complex systems, if you have a problem, there's usually more than one cause. And this is like sort of related to medicine. So you can have like multiple diseases causing that like you can have an output, but it's caused from multiple things at one time. But like again, like I think Hickam's dictum could work with this cat. Like, okay, maybe it's not like only because it's warm, but it might like the computer because it's warm. It might also like it because it vibrates. It might also like it because you're paying attention to the computer and the cat is jealous of the computer. Mm-hmm. And then also this, like, I mean, like I can see the smell thing, but also cats, they don't just rub their face on your computer. They also sit on your computer. Yeah. Yeah, there might be more things at play here as well. Um, but in the in the article, they had some like other examples of uh, where where that would fit. Um, but it could also be that they sort of mimic that, like you're giving the machine attention and the cat is giving it attention by like sitting on it, um, because there was seen that like cats can mimic, like if you are interacting with something with your head. Um, then the cats can mimic that and also bump their head into this, the thing. Um, so they can sort of understand, like, you're interacting with a body part with an object, and so they can um, make make the deduction that they also have to interact with the thing with the same body part, even though our bodies look nothing alike, um, but they still know that it's the heads. Um, it could be something like that that they just try to get their paws on there because they realize like we're using our extremities so they have to get their extremities on there so it could be multiple things this cat behavior specialist thinks it's the smell and with that i think we can come to the end of the show today um if you want to like to get in contact with us and send us your screenshots of your dating apps while using using ai generated pickup lines (laughs) you can do that on social media um on twitter you can talk to me that's at plants pipettes on Instagram and sometimes on Facebook, you can talk to me. It's at Plants and Pipettes. <laughs> we also have a website where in the month of May soon, we'll be restarting posting um, weekly update, like weekly news stories. We took a little bit of a break and we're focusing on a really cool idea that Tegan had on Instagram with like daily prompts. And it's actually quite fun um, because like in the morning, Tegan is like, you should say something about this and then the daily prompt and then it's I record It's so annoying. I have to video. like talk to you every single day now. And I get like social interaction <laughs> every single day. Like that's unheard of for oh, me. Exhausting. <laughs> my, my synapses are firing like crazy. Like I haven't felt this alive in years. And <laughs> yeah. uh, so we're doing this on, on Instagram. So that's a lot of fun. Check that out if you are interested in what we're doing there. It's, uh, it's really fun. So yeah, we also recorded a Plant Book Club episode, um, I think a week or two ago, um, and it was interesting. We talked about the book by... It's called The Botany of Desire um, by David Pollan, and it was actually a really fun um, book to read, and I liked it a lot because I got to use the word testiculate in a um, plant book card that I haven't done before. It was a new and fascinating experience for me. <laughs> check out in the link in the description um we'll have a link to the plant book club it's a cool show if you can't get enough plant science from us which is likely because we talk so much about other stuff opening and closing oh. music is caravana by philip gross Testicles. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> now you have to cut me out, but still, I'm just so laughing. <laughs>